Hey folks, it's a preview for episode 286, part 3, hitting some theology in Malabranch's Dialogues on Metaphysics and Religion. You've presumably already heard the preview of part 2, though it really doesn't matter, so you know the drill. All the full joy of this can be available to you at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. And you know, I'm interested in hearing from you folks that just listened to the previews, whether you find these intrinsically interesting. I see it as kind of like going through a newspaper, and you don't necessarily read the whole article, you read the headlines, and so that's pretty much what we're giving you here. I want you to keep in mind that if you don't want to just read the headlines and don't feel like you have enough money to subscribe, we do offer scholarships. So just email us, PEL at partiallyexaminedlife.com, and let us know that you want one of those. Hope you enjoy the preview. It occurred to me while I was doing the uh, blog post for the first episodes on this, for the Dialogues 1 through 4, that even though it's Dialogues and Metaphysics and Religion, we're talking about epistemology almost exclusively. And maybe that has something to do with just what we think metaphysics is. You know, the fact that like, oh, uh, Barclay, he's an empiricist, so he must be doing epistemology, even though his conclusion that everything is ideas is a metaphysical one. But, you know, that's just says something about how metaphysics has gotten shunted, you know, in our tradition. It's not like the primary thing, like Plato's Timaeus, where you're just spitballing on like, what is the world like? There is some of that, but at least by the time you get through Descartes and to Kant, you know, who has a big critique of metaphysics and all this other stuff, then it becomes something much weirder. So I, you know, I find after doing so many episodes, trying to figure out like, which ones are metaphysics? What have we done? Like an intro courses worth of metaphysics? I'm still not sure. You know, it's always hard to distinguish them because the epistemological problems motivate the metaphysical theories, right? That's there in Plato. What is virtue? How do we know what virtue is? How do we know what anything is? The world is becoming. What's our metaphysics such that the world becomes knowable? That's the usual motivation. We assume there's science of some sort. We assume that something is known, that knowledge is possible, and then we come up with a metaphysics, as in modern analytical philosophers call it, we come up with truth makers, right? That's what metaphysics is today. What are the truth makers that allow us to say that we know things? So those two things are intimately related. And then as we saw with the German idealists, they do converge in a really weird way at that point where first philosophy, which is to say metaphysics, becomes epistemology because the substance of the world just is subject. So that's another way in which they converge. And I think this early modern stuff, one of the reasons I find it so interesting is it just, it's kind of the history of how those two things really, the kind of path that was taken wherein such things do converge. You know, So you have Malebranche here arguing that our ideas are more knowable to us than matter and that when we know, you know, it's very platonic, but when we know things, we are accessing this intelligible realm in God. It sort of makes sense. I mean, maybe that's just because I'm a child of modernity that you wouldn't really be able to talk about what things are unless that you couldn't know, right? What would it mean to even talk about such a thing? The things that you don't know what they are. It hardly even makes sense as a sentence. Yeah, metaphysics is model building, right? It's like producing a model of an atom based on certain empirical phenomena, certain reflection, but on certain assumptions about, you know, if we didn't think we knew anything, there wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> if we don't really know the world, then why do we need a metaphysics? But you saying that it's metaphysics is model building raises the point that if you're serious about the metaphysics, you really want to talk about, well, what kind of entities are there? What kind of things are there? And what is their characteristic? And it implies that you have some choice there. Or there's some landscape of possibility regarding what things are. And it also implies that you're going to 
for lack of a better term, confirm that, or you're going to, you're going to have some judgment about whether or not that's true or not. I take that to be the content of what you mean by truth makers, right? It's the way in which you're right thinking about the things that are in the world. Yeah, the truth makers, they're just what says, when I say sentence P is true, then what entities in the real world ground that? What warrants me to make a claim, you know, to say that 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 sentence is true? That's the way contemporary or or analytic philosophers of certain stripe at a certain time would, would have put it. But that was the way it was being talked about when I took that class with Seth from Hannah Zeipt on Leibniz. We were talking about a lot of talk about truth makers. <laughs> and I was completely baffled and upset at that point because I <laughs> never heard of this stuff before. But yeah. So I think we were looking at the sixth dialogue that we had skipped over last time mm-hmm. is maybe the first thing to see what we wanted to pull out of this. It was sort of the, in summary, well, it's asking about how do we know that material objects exist at all. So repeating what I believe, Wes, you were saying, this is Descartes' sixth meditation. I think it's okay, fourth. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, I said sixth. There's a lot of stuff that comes after figuring out that the physical world exists. <laughs> so we, I think we had said last time that he thinks you cannot prove, there's no deductive proof available that a physical world exists. But he says that there are two sorts of revelation, natural revelations in sensation, and then supernatural revelation, the actual from religion, both support their existing objects. Why did you say natural revelation is in sensation? Because on page 211, I was reading the italicized (laughs) two sorts of revelations, natural revelation in sensation. He argues that we can't demonstrate the bodies exist because there's no demonstrative connection between the material world and God, right? It's not in the idea of God. We think of what this demonstrative relationship is. It's like math, right? We want to be able to say, okay, here's your idea and conceptually something falls out of it. The material world does not just conceptually fall out of the idea of God. So there is no demonstration that physical things really exist. But he thinks that he's proved that way that we can't demonstrate it just because there isn't that implication. And that's a proof of revelation. That's what it means to say that the only way we can prove that physical things exist is to say like Descartes that God would not deceive us. And the revelation here, of course, right, is ultimately what God does by putting the right idea in our mind at the right time in accord with the general laws of the union of the soul and the body and the laws of nature. He makes sure that things line up properly. So each sensation we have is like a revelation. It comes from God. That old glue sap. Okay, well, I guess I just was, I was confused because I was understanding the revelation natural revelation is being aligned with our rationality. Maybe what you're saying just fills in the problem of experience that's on page 217, where we know all these things by experience, which is a kind of challenging notion, as far as I can tell, for Malebranche, especially with regards to knowing anything. But I was, I was understanding natural revelation as being anchored by our rationality. And everything else you said is the connection between our bodies and our minds. You know, on page 214, we have the three sorts of beings. We have God, minds, and body. And that the, you know, occasional relation between bodies, minds, and correspondence of those laws. Yes, that's all correct. But I didn't think that natural revelation was sensation itself. What he does is at the end of five, he says that since we can't demonstrate that The existence of the material world follows from the concept of God. And because we already know bodies aren't, quote-unquote, visible in themselves, 
In other words, everything we call bodies, sensations, colors, all the physical properties, that stuff we know are just all secondary qualities. That's just all in the mind. The only thing that's real ultimately is intelligible extensions. So sensations have to be implanted in by God via, quote-unquote, the contingent laws. He puts this in different ways. This is Glusab again, but laws of the union of the soul and the body. So that's what revelation is. It's you know what I call the ledger, right? It's the correlations of brain states to mental states, which for Malabranch, his big insight is that we can't really call that causal. That's strictly speaking not causal, right? It's a weird thing to say a brain state causes a mental state. He's saying the causality lies outside of that particular interaction in the ledger itself, in the law itself, which is to say in God. So the revelation there, that's the ledger nature of all of this, where you get these brute correlations that we can't strictly speaking call causal. I'm still confused because it seems to me that everything I've read in Malabar so far anchors that to reason. That's the only way in which I get clarity regarding my sensations. And so that ledger version of a causal relation means that the way that I adjudicate the truth of my sensations is through reason, and it's going to be the right correspondence. So it's not by inspecting my, re- my sensations that I do, that's by using reason and inspecting my reason to judge my sensations. Because otherwise, there's no error in sensation. And the fundamental problem is that I have a misalignment between my body and my mind because of sin and the corruption of my mind by my body. And I'm going to save that. I'm going to fix that because I will get revealed the way the world works. My avenue towards God is through my reason. And and I'll solve that problem. And so that's the way I understood the revelation. I took the bringing the notion of revelation here as bringing in a completely separate and different epistemic context, not tied to reason. Yeah, revelation is right. usually contrasted to reason. Yeah, I mean, if you look on 215 to 216, the existence of bodies is not contained necessarily in the concept of God. Since God is entirely self-sufficient, this is us working with reason here. Since God is entirely self-sufficient, matter is not then a necessary emanation from the deity. Or at least it's not evident that matter is necessary. So you cannot demonstrate, since there's no necessary relation between the existence of matter and the perfect God, you can't use reason to do it. You can't use reason to get there. So he says, now, if bodies do exist, it's because God willed them, willed to create them. But the will to create bodies is also not contained necessarily in the notion of an infinitely perfect being, aka a being that's self-sufficient. In fact, it seems like it would be the opposite way. Hence, there's no way other than revelation which can assure us that God has willed to create bodies. And so the way I took that was him saying, you know, revelation is not an act of reason that would allow you to get to the type of certain knowledge that he's after, although it will get you to certain knowledge, apparently, just not through the use of reason. That was the way I saw it. On uh, page 213, he continually refers to faith in this context. Faith is given to us as a basis for regulating every step of our minds, as well as every movement of our hearts. It is given to lead us to an understanding of the very truths which it teaches us. There are so many people who scandalize the faithful with far-fetched metaphysics and insultingly ask for proofs 
of what they ought to believe on the infallible authority of the church, that although the solidity of your faith makes you unshakable by their tax, your charity should lead you to remedy the disorder and confusion which they introduce everywhere. So faith becomes not just you are a virtuous person and so you should believe religion, but it is something that is, he could have capitalized it. He could have made it a faculty of the mind. It's reason in uh, Pascal's sense, right? Where Pascal thought that our reason is so weak that we're such irrational, sinful creatures. But the wager is an argument to, let's say, practical reason. So there is something in even just how we apply the data that we've gathered, actually apply it to situations, actually live it, that faith is built into there. And if you know, I think in a different context, someone else might call that part of the faculty of reason. It's just that he means very something very specific by reason. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.